Support for WABE comes from the Community Foundation for Greater Atlanta. You can go beyond giving to impact. Learn more at cfgreateratlanta.org. I'm Erlon Woods. I'm Nigel Poor. We're the hosts and creators of Ear Hustle from PRX's Radiotopia. Ear Hustle is a show about life inside prison, but it's not your typical prison podcast. In this next season, we've got stories about the objects people keep inside their prison cells. About residents in a women's prison who say they want to stay there. And the most beautiful prison garden. Erlon, I will never forget it. Ear Hustle. Stories about life on the inside told by those who live it. Find Ear Hustle wherever you get your podcasts. Cloudy skies. Welcome to this Tuesday edition of Closer Look. I'm Rose Scott. Coming up later on the program, it's about a case in South Georgia that's gaining national attention after body camera footage shows police wrongfully arresting a black man. No, because there's two different people. That's why I was trying to figure out if I had missed something. He told him to put his hands behind his back. I'm so confused. Wait, wait. Okay, so... He's not the one with the warrant? No. A conversation with Amanda Usher from the Valdosta Daily Times. That's coming up in just a moment. In other news, the number of COVID-19 cases in Georgia continue to surge. And like so many other news outlets, we've been tracking these cases since late March. This week, Georgia is expected to reach a milestone regarding the number of confirmed cases. It's estimated the state will surpass 100,000 cases this week. And to give you an example how these numbers are always changing, you may recall on yesterday's program, I reported this. Now, at this hour, there are 95,616 confirmed COVID-19 cases. I'll play it again. Now, at this hour, there are 95,616 confirmed COVID-19 cases. Well, today at this hour, there are 97,064 confirmed COVID-19 cases. So in 24 hours, more than 1,400 new cases have been reported. Today, the number of deaths statewide is reported to be 2,878. And 11,919 are hospitalized. And of that number, more than 2,400 are ICU admissions. That, of course, according to the Georgia Department of Health. In other news or maybe related news, Fulton County Commission Chair Rob Pitts is urging all residents to wear face masks. In a statement released yesterday, the chairman wrote, quote, while I am not empowered to mandate the use of facial coverings across Fulton County, I am convinced that at this juncture it is an absolute necessary to do so. It is a wise thing to do, smart thing to do, and the moral thing to do, close quote. Meanwhile, in a Twitter post yesterday, Atlanta Mayor Keisha Lance Bottoms announced COVID-19, quote, literally hit home, close quote. The mayor confirming she tested positive for the coronavirus. Now, earlier today on Good Morning America, the mayor said her symptoms are mild. I have a slight headache, but that's not unusual during allergy season for me. And allergy season is just about year round in Georgia now. So um, just the same headache that I, I during stressful times in allergy season. Now, the mayor also addressed Georgia Governor Brian Kemp's decision to declare a state of emergency Monday. And the irony of that is that I asked Governor Kemp to allow us to mandate masks in Atlanta, and he said no. Uh, But he has called in the National Guard without asking if we needed the National Guard. So I understand if he wants to protect state buildings. Uh, We have been coordinating with the Georgia State Patrol, which we do on any number of occasions. Law enforcement agencies coordinate. Um, and we provide assistance to them. They provide assistance to us. 
Um, but at no time was it mentioned that anyone felt that there was a need for the National Guard to come in. Now, the governor's executive order cited a weekend of, quote, violent crime and property destruction here in Atlanta. The executive order also allows the governor to call up a thousand Georgia national troops to protect the state capitol, the governor's mansion and the state's public safety headquarters. That building was vandalized over the weekend. In a statement, the governor pointed to weekend shootings as a reason for the deployment, saying, quote, peaceful protests were hijacked by criminals with a dangerous, destructive agenda. Now innocent Georgians are being targeted, shot and left for dead. This lawlessness must be stopped and order restored in our capital city. Close quote. This is Closer Look. Closer Look continues now here on 90.1 WABE. Atlanta's Choice for NPR, I'm Rose Scott. It's an annual celebration, and it draws visitors from around the universe, literally. Many of them, well, they may pay homage by dressing up as superheroes, zombies, dragons, or comic book characters or anime characters. There are forums, discussion groups, there is even a big dance party, celebrity appearances, and oh yeah, one amazing parade. But not this year. For the first time in 34 years, the International Fantasy, Pop Culture, and Science Fiction Convention, Dragon Con, has been canceled. Now, this multi-day convention was originally scheduled from September 3rd through the 7th. You all know I'm a big Dragon Con fan, attendee, so this segment will probably be totally biased, but I think that's okay. It was projected to attract approximately 90,000 people, but as with anything else, due to the coronavirus pandemic, well... They're going to shift a little bit. And joining me now to talk all about this is longtime Dragon Con volunteer and director of media engagement, Dan Carroll. Dan, thanks for taking the time. Well, thank you, Rose, for having us. It's, it's really important to get the word out to our Dragon Con fans and to the community that while we don't have a live in-person event, we're still going on for this year. Mm-hmm. I know it was a tough decision for the organization Uh, And I know people like me and other media folks kept saying, when are y'all going to make a decision? Can you take us through what was that final determination and the realization that, you know what, we're going to have to move this to online and cancel the in-person convention? Well, um, we waited as long as we could before making a final decision because we were looking for any way possible to hold the event. Mm -hmm. Uh, Even if it was a smaller social distancing Dragon Con, uh, we worked really closely with our hotel partners, uh, the the Atlanta Convention and Visitors Bureau, who have been our ally through all this, uh, the health officials and uh, the government authorities in the city. And um, we looked at all that when we came to the decision. Uh, We know the economic impact of Dragon Con. well, it, it's it's big and it's important to Atlanta. One reason we wanted to hold an event was because we know our vendors, uh, our hotels, uh, the local restaurants and bars, uh, they benefit from Dragon Con. And uh, frankly, we consider them all partners. Mm-hmm. Dan, if Georgia's COVID-19 numbers were going in the opposite direction that they are now, if they had been decreasing in terms of new cases would that have made a difference for you all? 
Well, I, I think what we have to look at is the reality of where we are, uh, what the what the health recommendations have been, mm-hmm. uh, even for a convention, uh, even though conventions are, are not uh, prescribed, pre, uh, prescribed, we still would have had to take measures that, that would have made it not that fun and safe event that mm-hmm. we want our attendees to be able to enjoy. And I know that you all have always suggested that folks go ahead and book their hotel rooms for the the next year and and go ahead and and register for the next year. So how many folks had already pre-registered? How many folks were you all, I I mentioned the 90,000, but was that pretty much the numbers that you all were expecting for this year? That was. uh, Our our pre-registration was up. And uh, we have got, and I, I don't get involved with this personally, but we surely have means of looking at past data and being able to infer where we're going to get with our final tally. Mm-hmm. And uh, those, those, those factors and those folks who handle the bean counting, um, that 90,000 was, was a legitimate, um, very, very comfortable expectation for our planning. And uh, those are people who had hotel rooms. Mm -hmm. They had pre-purchased their badges for 2020. And we we knew that there were a number of people out there. Um, We had to take care of them. And Mm -hmm. uh, one of the things we're doing is all the members who have badges for 2020 are being rolled over automatically. Okay. Uh, into next year. But if you feel more comfortable getting a refund, don't anticipate coming to DragonCon 2021. We also have t- a mechanism in place to take care of that. Yeah. Uh, so we we have um, uh, we have set up some information on www.dragoncon.org/updates mm-hmm. to help people process their reg- their refund. But if they go ahead and uh, come back next year. They don't even have to worry about it. It's automatic. And uh, we're going to we thank them for their support. And we're going to we're going to send them a little free gift um, once we get everything taken care of. The details of that are being put together and we haven't haven't really explained it. But um, a lot of people are saying, I wish I had a badge for DragCon 2020. And if you are pre-registered, you're taken care of with that badge. So let's at least talk about what folks will get out of this year's Dragon Con. We know there's going to be shifting to online in that virtual world. And I know you all are still trying to work all of that out, but this is also going to be free so everyone can enjoy, correct? Yeah, there was a location you mentioned earlier, the universe. (laughs) So anyone in the universe who has access to the Internet of Earth um it's access to our dragon con uh virtual event and the virtual event we're pretty excited about we have done for for three or four years we have done streaming of dragon con mm-hmm. uh where the events of dragon con are uh transmitted over the internet during dragon con it's it's been a uh a four uh, four fee activity now we're taking that and making it free we're going to create new content for this year. What it is, it's still under wraps. And we don't normally say what we're going to do for the live content until a couple of weeks before the event. We also have almost 20 years worth of DCTV mm-hmm. streaming to the hotels and being recorded, but also uh, creating unique content 
over the years they've made fake cart commercials i'm sure you've seen some yeah, of them in the panels I have. Uh, one of my favorite is kfc for battlestar galactica kentucky fracking chicken um <laughs> which is not a bad word i can say that on the radio yes you can um but it's uh it's a bucket of chicken it looks like a kfc bucket but it's it's on the battlestar galactica set and um we're going to take those funny bits and those serious bits and those discussions and make them available uh, also. So you'll get new content and you'll get our classic content. The voice you hear is Dan Carroll. He's a longtime Dragon Con volunteer and director of media engagement. And we're discussing the decision to cancel this year's in-person Dragon Con convention. But there are plans to hold a virtual convention this year instead. And Dragon Con is not the first con that has to do this this year but when you look at what's happening with this pandemic uh do you think that will change though i mean this is through your lens do you think what we're experiencing may change how folks particularly for a con do you think that's going to change and how organizers like you all need to approach this moving forward because of this pandemic well i'm not a prognosticator but i will say that 2020 has been hard on everyone yeah um, and, and of course, we're disappointed by this, uh, this turn of events, but greater minds than mine are dealing with that issue right now. And, uh, and not just at DragonCon, I'm talking about in the entire country, mm-hmm. uh, how everything's going to be looked at from sporting events to, gosh, Little League, all the way to the Major League Baseball. And uh, it's no different than how stores are going to be operating in the future. Mm -hmm. Uh, The changes are going to come. And I think we've got to be flexible to adapt to whatever the future holds. Now, Dan, normally you all partner with a charity each year. Will that continue this year or is that on hold? Well, our charity this year is something that is near and dear to my heart because I was a big brother mm-hmm. and it was big brother's little sisters. Um, those details are, are being worked out. Uh, we've just made the announcement this week. Um, just as we're looking at also providing opportunities for our massive vendor space, uh, we have an incredible uh, multi-football field wide vending area. And uh, we're also looking at opportunities to make sure that our vending partners aren't forgotten. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and I think that, that says a lot. Uh, you, you mentioned I, I've been a volunteer with DragonCon a long time. I really believe in the organization as, as Dan Carroll, the outside side entity. Mm-hmm. And I know that um, any, any way that we can take care of our partners, we will. Um, and decisions will be announced once they're made. How tough has this been for you then personally as Dan Carroll, who just really believes in the organization and what Dragon Con stands for and what it means also, Dan, for so many people, because Dragon Con is always going to be the first Dragon Con for somebody and for someone to come out of, even for folks I've talked to, they say, I get to come out of my little comfort zone and I get to experience this with other folks like me. What does that mean for you just personally and that this year it won't, it's just not going to happen? I, I, I will say that I'm a jumble of internal emotions. Um, I am very proud of the organizations for taking the steps it's taken to make sure that uh, we will be back in 2021. Uh, and more importantly, that we are protecting mm-hmm. uh, everybody who would be coming this year. Uh, but I'm also very personally um, 
sad because uh, a friend of mine mentioned this yesterday on, on chat and and I, I echo this there are people i see once a year mm -hmm. at dragon con and they are people coming from nevada and california and michigan and chicago and uh even even my um my my partner in dragon con media relations uh sam sam uh Urbatus, uh she's just amazing but she comes every year from from chicago uh to run our media registration she she's my uh she calls herself my office wife and um we we are we are a team and i won't get to see her for two years now mm -hmm. and this is this is not um uh, this is obviously sad, and DragonCon is a family. But you know, I think about my own family. My 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 kids are scattered throughout the Northeast and 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 Europe, and I am not able to see them. Mm -hmm. And it's true for everybody. And you know, I could I could complain and whine about my own situation, but realize that we're all in this together. Mm -hmm. Now, the Dragons Award is a voter's choice award, uh, but it's still going to take place. Uh, can you give me a little bit more about how all this is going to work? Sure. Um, the way we're doing uh, the Dragon Award is that we're going to be working it through uh, online because that was the way voting was anyway. Mm -hmm. uh, nominations and voting were all online. The only thing that was in person was the presenting of the awards. Um, we're going we're gonna to go ahead and probably... Uh, I would not be surprised that if we don't have some portion of that shown uh, shown over our streaming um, a streaming convention. Uh, but right now, as I said, the details of programming are still being worked out. Uh, brighter heads than mine are putting this together to make sure it happens. And as we wrap up, I, I know y'all are making plans for 2021. In your press announcement, you hinted it will be, quote, epic. Now, what can you tell me? I think what we're going to do is make sure all of our energy goes towards creating and sustaining everything that makes Dragon Con worthwhile. The, that whole idea of fantasy and fantastic, the idea of community and of, of sharing like interests and uh, this year, more than any any year that I can think of in my life, the idea of inclusion, that we are a place where everyone feels safe. Mm -hmm. And um, that is something that we will continue, continue to hold as, as our banner. And um, I think it's going to be a whole lot of fun. And I think people are going to be really happy to be there. Everyone's going to be very excited to be back at DragonCon. Dan Carroll, longtime DragonCon volunteer and director of media engagement. Dan, as always, thank you for taking the time. This is the first time I think we've done this virtually in years. You usually come into the studio and, you know, we tell the listeners about all the great things at DragonCon. But as you said, 2020 has changed a lot for a lot of people. So we all go with the flow. Absolutely. Thank you for having us, having us DragonCon and having me personally. Uh, and folks, uh, www.dragoncon.org is a place for so much more information than we can talk about right now. And look, if folks, we encourage you to still go ahead and pay homage to your favorite sci-fi, fantasy, anime, superhero, whatever. Dress up, run around your house, have fun. I'll throw this out. I have seen people dressed up 
at their homes taking pictures of themselves dressed up in Hamilton cosplay already. I think it's great. (laughs) Thanks, Dan. Take care. Thank you, Russ. Support for WABE comes from the Community Foundation for Greater Atlanta. If you love Atlanta, you can invest in the big picture. Learn more at cfgreateratlanta.org. The field of mental health counseling is growing rapidly, and Richmond Graduate University can equip you with everything you need as a licensed professional counselor while integrating your faith into your clinical practice. Programs are offered in Atlanta, Chattanooga, and online. Apply today at richmont.edu. That's R-I-C-H-M-O-N-T dot E-D-U. Closer Look continues now here on 90.1 WABE. This is Atlanta's Choice for NPR. As always, I'm Rose Scott. There's a case out of South Georgia that's gaining some national attention after body camera footage was released that appears to show police wrongfully arresting a black man. Attorneys for Antonio Arnello Smith say Valdosta police officers handcuffed and broke their client's wrist after mistaking him for a suspect in a panhandling case. Now Smith and his attorneys are suing the police chief, the mayor, and others for hundreds of thousand dollars in compensation and punitive damages. They also say Smith's civil rights were violated. Meanwhile, Valdosta Mayor James Matheson has told the Valdosta Daily Times the city would not discipline any of the officers involved. Amanda Usher is the Lifestyles reporter at the Valdosta Daily Times. She's been following this story since the beginning, and she joins me now. Amanda, thanks for taking the time. Thank you for having me. For listeners who haven't seen this video, but this occurred back on February 8th, correct? Yes, ma'am. And you actually, you you were able to obtain the body camera footage from the officers involved. It's about 11 minutes long, correct? Yes, ma'am. So take us through it. What do we see on this video? The footage starts actually at the initial encounter with Mr. Smith. It is from the perspective of the patrolman who stopped him originally. They were investigating, as you said, the panhandling, and they were told from someone in the parking lot, um, I believe it's a customer, that the guy that police were looking for went in the direction that Mr. Smith was heading. Mm -hmm. And so the patrolman stopped him. He told him what he was investigating. And Mr. Smith then immediately began to defend himself verbally. He told the police officers, I'm just waiting for my sister to wire me some money. Um, I'm not doing anything. I've been around cameras. He made that known. And so as he was communicating with the patrolman that stopped him, um, he had at that point handed him his license because he had been asked for his ID. A now lieutenant, then a sergeant, walked up. He was called to the scene per his police report. And um, he walked up to Mr. Smith. He grabbed his right wrist. He, um, he wrapped around, reached for the left arm. He, he wrapped his arms around Mr. Smith. And then uh, Mr. Smith was instructed to put his hands behind his back. I counted three different times. Uh, now, if you watch the footage, he was not asked beforehand, before the grab, to put his hands behind his back. Up until that point, his lawyer maintains he had been compliant. Mm-hmm. And so now the, the sergeant, he has his, his arms uh, in a bear hug around Mr. Smith. And then after he asked him to put his hands behind his back, he then lifted him up and he, he threw him to the ground. Mr. Smith landed on the ground face first. So he was laying on his stomach. He was laying completely flat. 
at that point, other officers had joined. So you now have four officers on the scene. Mm-hmm. And they attempted to uh, put handcuffs on him. He, he had been yelling about his wrist. Ouch, my, you know, my, my wrist is hurting. I, he was crying out in pain. And they had noticed that he could have an injury at that point. Per their report, they didn't know what type of injury, but they did realize he was injured. And so they had taken the handcuffs off of him. And once they did that, you can hear one of the patrolmen say, you have a warrant for your arrest. We're, you know, we're, we're going to take you in. Mm-hmm. And so after that's being said, the patrolman who initially stopped Mr. Smith said, wait, no, hold on. The guy you're talking about is down the street with the other set of officers. This guy, I just stopped. I just made contact with him. This isn't the one with the warrant. So at that point, that then caused some confusion in the group because the officers, the other three thought they had got the guy with the warrant. Mm-hmm. Um, and that alone sparked questions amongst people who viewed the footage because they were saying, well, even if he did have a warrant, would that make it right? What happened? At that point that the handcuffs are off, they realize he's injured and they are confused at who has the warrant. The patrolman initially, who initially stopped him, he explained the situation. They turned him over. They helped him sit up. They sold him an ambulance is on the way. You can't hear from the viewpoint of the footage that we put out, but if you can hear him down on the ground calling for an ambulance. Mm-hmm. And so at that point, the sergeant who had grabbed him, he walked over to his patrol car. Um, from his report, he said he was going to call his lieutenant at the time to come out and I guess take over the scene. I don't know it's exactly what what that chain of command is like and the whole time they're still confused <laughs> like we're, we're going minutes into this and the other officers still don't exactly know what's going on because so they're they confused think- as to one why they're there and they realize they have the wrong suspect I guess through their lens right they don't know what's going on because they have a guy who they thought had a warrant and then they find out oh no he doesn't have a warrant and then you have the sergeant who then attempted to arrest Mr. Smith. So there's a lot of confusion going on in that video. Speaking of that video, that moment you just talked about where officers realize they have handcuffed the wrong person, uh, we have a little snippet of that. This guy, I had just got contact with him. I thought this was one with one. No, that's why I was trying to... No, because there's two different people. That's why I was trying to figure out if I had missed something. He told him to put his hands behind his back. I'm so confused. Wait, okay, so he's not the one with the warrant. No, a lot of confusion there. Were all these officers that were called to the scene, Amanda? Were they white? No, the the sergeant, and I'm I'm gonna call him lieutenant because he has since been promoted. So the, the lieutenant and the other patrolman, as you can clearly see in the video, they are white. But from the viewpoint of our footage, which is the first patrolman, if you look at his hands, he, he doesn't look to be white at all now. Eventually, did they call an ambulance for Mr. Smith? Did he receive medical treatment on site there? No, he actually refused it. Um, if you look in towards the end of the footage, he kind of looks a little bit differently than when you first saw him. Mm-hmm. Um, he was a lot more verbal in the beginning and, and afterwards he just kind of 
shut down a little bit. He did say, you know, I was about to put my hands behind his back. He forcefully picked me up and he just seemed a little bit shaken up and you can kind of see him just shutting down. And so he refused medical help. They did allow him to walk away from the scene. The scene, okay. Did they apologize? I did not see an apology in that footage. And speaking of the medical help, he did go later that night to our local hospital and get medical help, but he did not get it on the scene. Is that true that the broken wrist occurred during that altercation with the police? I have not seen any medical paperwork, but that is what's being said, that he did get that from that incident that day. Mm. The voice you hear is Amanda Usher. She's a lifestyles reporter at the Valdosta Daily Times. We're talking about a South Georgia man's $700,000 lawsuit against the police department for what he and his attorneys call excessive force and a violation of his civil rights. Now, Amanda, this body camera footage and lawsuit, now this is all coming months later, but when you think about what's been happening across the nation with the police killing of George Floyd and others, what's the mood right now in Valdosta as it relates to this case? Is there much attention being paid to it? It's making some national headlines now. Yeah, it's definitely doing that. There is a lot of attention here locally since that happened. African-American leaders here in town, I've been in out of Valdosta for 11 years. They've always held events protesting on on behalf of African-Americans and on behalf of equality, but they're doing it even more so now. I know at one point we were having, uh, and this was before the lawsuit broke out, we were having protests and rallies every other weekend in regards to the Black uh, Lives Matter movement. Mm -hmm. And so now that we have this out, there's a lot of people that are standing behind Mr. Smith here. We've had a, a conference, I believe, about maybe a week, a week and a half ago or, or about um, police reform, about community residents and community leaders. They actually brought together the, uh, I believe, some of the county officials and city officials were there in terms of how do we fix this? And they feel like police brutality is a big issue, and it is. And so they, they brought all of these leaders together to try to come up with a solution. So this is not the first time... Obviously, there's been some concerns about excessive force or the police and, and some of their alleged misconduct. Not from my hearing, no. This is the first that I've reported on personally. But now if you speak to other people, they seem to think that this is a common, common thing here in the town. And to your knowledge, Amanda, has there been any disciplinary measures or even a probe internally with the Valdosta Police Department into this incident? There was an administrative review done and uh, it was done with the Chief Eternal Affairs, uh, a commander and a lieutenant. And they all signed off on the review. There was no remand at all. There was no discipline. Uh, I've reached out to the city attorney. I reached out to the mayor. As you could see in our reports, he sided with the police department and saying there will be no discipline. I am attempting to get in touch with the city chief and possibly sit down with her and and see where she stands on this. Um, But as of right now, no no reprimanding at all has taken place. And we should note Closer Look reached out to the mayor, invited him to join us for a conversation about all of this. And through a spokesperson for the city, they said they are consulting the city's attorney before a decision could be made if he could speak with us. Meanwhile, they did pass along a video from the mayor, and I want to play it. We're here today, all of us, 
to say that any time a citizen has an encounter with a Valdosta employee that results in an injury, we're truly sorry for that regardless of who's at fault. That includes the incident involving Mr. Antonio Smith. We can always do better and we're always committed to doing so. However, progress requires moving forward together. Elected officials, city staff, and most importantly, the citizens of Valdosta. That is why we're proud that we've been able to come together, meet, and have honest and tough conversations. At the city council meeting on June 11th, city manager Mark Barber introduced the idea of a revamped citizens review board. The board would be a representation of our whole community with one person appointed from each council district by their city council representative. These representatives would meet with the police chief and the mayor on a routine basis to discuss police department related topics. We have had meetings with many of our local leaders within the African-American community in the past week, wanting further explanation on the incidents and to sit down and talk about their feelings on the issue. This kind of dialogue is not only important, it's critical. Amanda, what's been the response from community leaders there or civil rights leaders there, what the mayor has said? Or is this a step forward? Is this a step toward progress from their viewpoint? In terms of uh, our leaders here, I have not heard anything about their thoughts on a review board. One is will probably be um, accepted, I'm, I'm assuming. Um, but no, I, ha I haven't heard anything in terms of any communication about that at all from them. And the mayor has faced some criticism and actually calls for him to resign as well. Uh, yes, and they are also calling for the police chief to resign as well. They are saying, first, you you wrote off on the review. You signed a piece of paper stating, of course, that you found nothing wrong. That they think that there needs to be police reform, but it needs to start from the top. And so they're aiming directly for those who govern our officers, who are, are their, their supervisors. They want the mayor, if he's not going to do anything, they want him out. If they, the police chief is not going to do anything, they want her out. And again, these are their thoughts. They think if we're going to have a change in our police department, then we, we have to go directly to the top. And again, I'm speaking for, for them, not mm -hmm. myself. And Amanda, how would you assess the Valdosta City Council? I know that's very diverse, but in terms of the the relationship with the mayor, and in, is it a working, cohesive group here? Sometimes the mayor has a bit more power, sometimes the city council. Uh, how would you assess their structure here? We have a new mayor. He just recently got elected. So it's really hard to say. I have not been around council and mayor together mm -hmm. much. But with the, the previous mayor, they seem to definitely work fine. The council seemed to have gotten their voices heard. But I can't say for this current mayor. And to your knowledge, is there any negotiations involved with Mr. Smith and the city in terms of a settlement? Not to my knowledge, no. So now that this case is getting more national attention, do you feel that something could come out of this? I mean, are you hearing anything from city leaders about something definitely will come out, whether it's disciplinary actions against the officers or this police reform? Are you hearing anything? I have been in touch with the attorneys who have filed the lawsuit because that was my question. You know, what happens now? You, you file these documents, the city has received them, what now? Um, and so it sounds like they are in the process of waiting for the city's response. To my knowledge, that has not happened yet. 
again, I have been attempting to communicate with the city attorney to find out where they are, are with those documents. I'm going to try a little bit more later on. But it sounds like the, in terms of the lawsuit, there's a long road ahead for mm -hmm. it, which means there's a long road ahead for me as a reporter of this suit. But I do want to say in terms of what comes out of it, I know what people are looking to get. You know, they're looking to get that reform. They're looking to get that equality, that proper training that they say police lack. Uh, I know uh, before you all had asked about any unanswered questions, my unanswered question will be, is there a winner? Will there be a winner on, on, on all of this? Mm -hmm. And my answer, you know, I don't know what the, the court is going to say, but I feel like there won't be any winners mm -hmm. because you have Mr. Smith, who's clearly emotional. I laid eyes on him last week. Um, I did not speak with him, but I did see him. He was very emotional. He was he was crying um, or, or tearful. And you can see in the footage how he was that day after it happened. So this is something that is going to follow him uh, um, for the rest of his life. I'm hoping, you know, he heals from it. The police, we're told the police are getting death threats. Mm. City officials are getting death threats and their families, probably officers who had nothing to do with that incident, who weren't even there that day, are probably getting threatened. And so when you hear something like that, it doesn't sound like there's a winner on either side of it. And so I'm hoping that people politics aside, mm -hmm. people see the humanity in all of this because you do have a man who endured something that he felt was tragic, who endured something that he felt was painful, not just physically. He's not still dealing with the, the physical part. It's mentally and emotionally as well. And so I don't know what's going to come out of it. All I can say is I'll be there the whole way. And whether it's a large urban city or a small town like Valdosta, I think your population is still just under 60,000 um, cries for police reform. They all seem to have the same wants and, and recommendations and suggestions. So, Yeah, you do have some people who have spoken up. They're, they're on the, the police side, but I, the majority I've seen have been on Mr. Smith's side. Amanda Usher is a lifestyles reporter at the Valdosta Daily Times. Amanda, thank you for your coverage of this case, and thank you for your time. I really appreciate it. Thank you for having me. I, I enjoyed it. Closer Look continues now here on 90.1 WABE. This is Atlanta's Choice for NPR. I'm Rose Scott. According to the Marshall Project, 48,764 people in prison have tested positive for the coronavirus. Now, there's at least 548 deaths among prisoners. It's also believed one of the first deaths was right here in Georgia. 49-year-old Anthony Cheek was being held in Lee State Prison near Albany, Georgia. He died March 26th at a nearby hospital. And others have tested positive for COVID-19 at Lee State Prison. Meanwhile, advocates for those who are incarcerated say the current coronavirus is a crisis that exposes systemic flaws in the nation's criminal justice system. Where do we begin to address this? Well, there's also a new report from the national think tank, the Council on Criminal Justice, and it outlines 15 steps to reform the United States criminal justice system. 
This report was penned by a bipartisan criminal justice task force, and that was chaired by Georgia's own former governor, Nathan Deal. But joining me now to discuss all of this is the CEO and president of the Council on Criminal Justice, Adam Gebb. Mr. Gebb, thanks for taking the time. I really appreciate it. It's good to be with you, Rose. Let's start with this pandemic when we talk about issues with the correctional facilities in the nation. We really are having two crises right on top of each other. Some people have said it's a pandemic within a pandemic, but the the pandemic uh, of what's happening with our criminal justice system has been a very slow moving one. Some would say 250 or even 400 years, and it's coming to a head all right now where people are pent up and they're frustrating and that is coming out. And for those of us who have been working in this field for a long time, myself starting here in Atlanta in 1987 as a reporter covering the police department mm-hmm. um, back, uh, back in the 80s at the height of the drug war, it's a very scary moment and it's also a very exciting one because it does feel like for the first time in a long time, uh, we are at a point where uh, we can make a real difference and there's an opportunity to. And part of that is that coming into this situation the last few months, there was an incredible bipartisan agreement that the criminal justice system was neither producing enough safety nor enough justice. And what's critical right now is that we try to do everything we can possibly do to hold that bipartisan agreement together and not have the protests and what's happening on the streets right now rip it apart. Well, let me back up for a second. Let me ask you this, because I've asked this question to a number of people before in all the conversations I've had. How do you define, if you can, what criminal justice reform should look like? Now, I realize that's a broad umbrella. Well, it really is a top to bottom situation. Uh, You know, in a technical matter, Rose, the way the criminal justice reform has uh, been used, that term has been used over the past many years, really has referred to what we call the back end of the system, and that is sentencing and corrections. So Mm -hmm. given that there's been a crime committed, how is that person dealt with by the the criminal justice system? What are the chances that 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 person is going to be uh, uh, held pre-trial? What what are the chances the person are going to be sentenced to prison? How long are they going to serve? And then what kind of support and supervision are they going to get on the back end coming out of prison? That's what it has meant. Uh, Certainly in the last few weeks, the concept for a lot of people has broadened substantially and uh, and includes what's happening on the front end of the system mm-hmm. and not just what police uh, are doing on the streets and how they're doing it, but really the much bigger question of what is the role of police in a free and democratic society. Mm-hmm. As I mentioned, coming into the program and Georgia's mm-hmm. own former governor, Nathan Deal, I've actually had conversations with him. Mm-hmm. He was really the architect of changing Georgia's or leading Georgia's criminal justice reform process, because as he alluded to, the state was spending so much money that there were no actionable outcome. Uh, Criminal justice in this country is a fundamentally state and local function. Ninety percent of the prison population roughly is is at the the state and local level. Uh, There are 18,000 Uh, police departments in this country. And so real change is going to have to occur on a department by department, on a city and county and state level by by state level. Uh, That said, uh, there is an incredibly important role for national leadership in this country to set the tone and the direction of this conversation. And there are some important steps that the federal government can take. And we did uh, with the first task force report of Mm -hmm. the Council on Criminal Justice that you mentioned. 
that Governor Deal chaired uh, outline a set of steps that this bipartisan group of leaders felt like were the most important and at the time politically viable things that the uh, federal government could do to make a difference. There are more than a dozen states that have private prison contracts. Some folks say this is not a good thing. This is also part of the problem. How do you view private prisons or what we call for-profit prisons here? They have come to play a really symbolic and important role in this whole debate, Rose, but I do think some of it's misplaced. Private prisons have accounted for uh, roughly about 8% of the total prison population. Mm -hmm. And if you were to wipe out all private prisons, you would reduce the population by that amount. And I think a lot of people, uh, particularly some of the loudest voices in this conversation, wouldn't blink if you got rid of 8% of the prison population. That would be considered tinkering mm -hmm. and, and incremental change. And so while there is something just, I think we all feel in our core that at some level, putting somebody behind bars, when that has to be done, should be a function of government. And it should not be something that is done uh, by a private company with for-profit interests. Uh, on the other hand, if we put a lot of energy into, into things that are not going to really move the numbers that much, then mm -hmm. we miss opportunities to do things that could have greater impact. Well, that leads me to my next question, which deals with another uh, guideline, which is establishing a, quote, second look provision, allowing people serving longer sentences, many of them elderly, uh, to ask courts for to reduce their sentences or simply release them. Would it be based on their health condition? Would it be based on how much time they've already served? Would it be based on the severity of their conviction? Right. I'm really glad you asked about this one, uh, particularly here in Georgia, because uh, Georgia is a, a state that did keep parole. And uh, here in Georgia and across the country, many states do have what is known as parole, where a group of people take a look at somebody's record behind the walls, they take a look at their, their previous uh, criminal history, uh, and make a judgment based on those and other factors as to whether or not somebody uh, is ready to be released back to society. And that doesn't exist at the federal level. That mm -hmm. was abolished in the 80s. And, um, and in the federal system right now, you have to serve 85% of your sentence. Mm -hmm. uh, there's a lot of positive aspects about that certainty of sentencing, both for uh, uh, victims who want to be assured that they know exactly how long uh, their assailant was behind the walls, uh, and even sometimes for, um, uh, for inmates themselves. But in this case, the task force really felt like there needs to be hope at one level, mm -hmm. and that there needs to be a chance for, uh, for people to go back to the court some mechanism here uh, for people who have really changed and can really demonstrate that they are uh, a different person and are a safe bet going back to the community to take that case back to court and have it heard by a judge. Mr. Gibb, let me get your thoughts on this. Do you see police reform, community policing reform as part of criminal justice reform? Is oh, there absolutely. There's an intersection there. How do you see that? Well, in, in a criminal justice world, we call this, we call the system a funnel. Mm -hmm. uh, and that funnel starts at, the, at its widest end with uh, the actual number of crimes committed. Then it, uh, then it narrows by the number of crimes reported to police. 
then to arrests, then to prosecutions and convictions and incarcerations, and then coming out the, uh, out the back end. And uh, uh, as we talked about a few minutes ago, a lot of the focus over the years has been at that back end of the system when the funnel has already substantially narrowed. So you're dealing with a small fraction of, of the cases that make their way from, from the start of that funnel. And so the, the real opportunity here is to shrink the number of cases mm -hmm. that are coming into the system in the first place. And that has so many facets of it that I, I know you're, you're itching to get at here, but I would, I would just flag one, particularly here in Atlanta, mm -hmm. which, um, which hasn't entered this debate yet, but I think deserves a real place here. And that is the 311 system. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, when I started out as a reporter here in the 80s, uh, I was on the, on the night shift uh, from four in the afternoon to, to one in the morning. I was listening to the police scanner and hanging out at the police headquarters uh, and often would go into the 911 call center uh, if, if nothing was much was going on and hang out with the, the operators. And I was absolutely blown away by the types of calls that would come in to the 911 center. Uh, for people uh, looking for the police to do things that had nothing whatsoever to do with laws or law enforcement or anything going on. In fact, there were a number of people who just called up, and, and this is this is really sad, but they would call because they had nobody else to talk to, hmm. and and they would dial nine one one and just try to engage the operators in in chat. And um, you know, flash forward here now for several years, the city has had a three one one system, which has as one of its core purposes, let's take these calls that, that used to come into 911 that people used to be asking the police to respond mm -hmm. to and put in a system with an easy to remember number that will help triage and then, uh, and then disperse across the city government to other agencies, uh, things that people used to call the police for. So non-emergency, are you referring to non-emergency calls correct. that you typically would want an officer to respond to? Exactly. And uh, my hope would be that that system here and, and elsewhere where it's put in across the country has started to shift people at, away from relying on the police to do many to do so many things for them so that they can, in fact, focus on responding to emergency calls and investigating serious violent crimes. Your organization was formed about a year ago in response to the 2018 Federal First Step Act. You reduced some sentences and reformed inmate reentry programs. Have you been able to measure the progress since you all were formed? And if so, how? What metric are you using? Great. Well, uh, I appreciate you asking about the organization. We are about a year old, so so we don't have a, a long list of successes at this point. In fact, the, the task force report that, that uh, you were referring to just came out a couple of weeks ago. It was our very first task force report. We're, we're, we're extremely pleased to have worked with, uh, with Governor Deal and, and uh, former Deputy Attorney General Sally Yates here in Atlanta um, and, and many others uh, across the country to put together what we think is, is a, a very uh, comprehensive and aggressive report that is really the strongest indication yet, I think, of the depth of the political consensus on criminal justice reform. Uh, there are individual proposals in there that push further than these but none that are as far reaching and, and as comprehensive and have such a broad backing across the political spectrum. The world, the, the, the world right now is moving at warp speed, uh, as you know. Uh, things that did not seem uh, politically possible even just a few weeks ago now seem like they are gonna be done and done quickly. 
So yes, we, we anticipate that, that this report will get a strong reception in Washington, primarily the recommendations of this first task force report are aimed uh, at Congress and at the administration. And so there's, there's a good bit in here for the judicial branch to do as well. And, and so we have been asked already to provide briefings to several lawmakers on Capitol Hill, to the administration, uh, and to many of the, the advocacy groups in Washington that are working on these issues day in and day out. Well, Congress is, this has been an interesting Congress. One could label them a Congress that sometimes has issues working across the aisle, being that this is a bipartisan-led effort. Does that give you some hope? It does, uh, but uh, as we talked about a, a little bit ago, uh, it's hard to know how this conversation is going to tip right now. It's an election year, and there are some fault lines that are being drawn here now. Uh, very optimistic that uh, Senator Tim Scott from South Carolina on the mm -hmm. Senate side is, is drafting some police reform legislation, and uh, it does seem likely that something will happen there. But this is this is really important thing for for people, I think, to understand, which is that uh, if you don't have the data and you don't have the numbers and you don't run the analysis, you risk shooting at, at targets that are not going to produce the kind of change mm -hmm. that we need. Um, a quick example here is chokeholds. Mm -hmm. uh, uh, that is something that obviously needs to be done. It's outrageous in this day, day and age that we don't have all police departments that have uh, formally banned that practice and other neck restraints. So it's absolutely critical to do. But uh, when you look at the numbers, you see that uh, chokehold asphyxiation accounts for about 1% of the uh, police killings that we've had over the past 20 years, about 200 or so of the 20,000, about 1,000 a, a year, three a day, which is mm. incredible. Uh, so important to do, and with all these problems in this massive and fragmented system, you have to take uh, you have to take every bite out of it that you can. So taking taking that bite uh, out is is really important, and it's certainly symbolically important. But it's not going to move the numbers in a in a way that I don't, I think anybody anybody wants. So we need to we need to do many many more things, including those things in the task force report that have a lot to do with uh, with enhancing the legitimacy of the criminal justice system and the perceptions that it does treat people of all races equally. Adam Gelb is CEO and president of the Council on Criminal Justice, and we've been talking about a task force recommendations. We'll have a link to the report on our website. Adam, thank you so much for taking the time. I really appreciate it. Thank you, Rose. Appreciate your focus on these issues. That's it for this edition of Closer Look, which is produced by Grace Walker and LaShawn Hudson. Our engineer is Shelley Kanavy. If you missed any of today's program, it's online at wabe.org slash Closer Look. And of course, you can listen to Closer Look weeknights at 8 p.m. And listen whenever you want, because Closer Look is now available as a podcast. Just visit NPR One or your favorite streaming app and subscribe. This is 90.1 WABE, Atlanta's choice for NPR. I'm Rose Scott.
Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. The Gold Dome Scramble podcast is now plugged in, a WABE politics podcast. New name, same on-the-ground reporting from us, WABE politics reporters Sam Greenglass and Raul Bally. We'll cover local, state, and national politics as we talk to politicians and voters to break down each week's biggest headlines. New episodes drop on Fridays. Listen and subscribe at WABE.org or your favorite podcast platform. WABE.